You're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast hosted by Matt Franks and Zach Bechtold. If you'd like to learn more about the Bearded Theologians, you can go online at beardedtheologians.com. On the website, you'll be able to find past beard casts and other blog posts that we have up there. You can also click the buy stuff item and pick up a few items to, to support the podcast. But we uh, thank you for listening and you hope you enjoy our show today. You're listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast hosted by Matt Franks and Zach Bechtold. Uh, and this week, we, we had the pleasure of having a, a wonderful guest with us uh, today, uh, Dr. Andrew Root. He teaches at uh, Luther, Luther Seminary in St. Paul. Uh, Andrew, thanks for being with us, man. Yeah, it's fun to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. I don't yeah. have a beard. I don't know if that disqualifies me for the conversation, but... No, that's actually, okay. We photoshopped that on in in post. <laughs> actually, the uh, majority of the people who've been on the show are beardless, so I don't oh, know if that's like a thing that like we just bring people on that don't have beards <laughs> to show that we have an open table. Or I, I, yeah, I, well, actually, I had a beard and then I got intimidated by your guys's beard, so I just like, <laughs> yeah. before you saw it. So um, yeah. That's all right. That's all right. Uh, well, again, Andrew, thanks for being on, man. Uh, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, you know, kind of where you're from, what you do, you know, all those things. Yeah. So I live, uh, as you kindly mentioned, I teach at Luther Seminary in the Twin Cities. And it's, uh, what's the date today? It's April 19th. And we have like, I don't know, six, seven, eight inches of snow still on the ground. So I live in a place where there is no joy and happiness <laughs> because <laughs> spring will not come. Yep. So that's the first thing to say about myself is that I'm in a, in a kind of sense of despair. And probably the segue into my work is that I've uh, written a lot on uh, or kind of central theological dynamic for me is Luther's Theology of the Cross. So this spring I've been, been living in the despair of uh, – a promise not yet arrived in, in spring. So, um, but yeah, I teach uh, and have done a lot of uh, kind of youth ministry training and teaching and writing on youth ministry. But um, one of my big kind of pushes is to use youth ministry to talk about more broader theological issues and, and uh, the pastoral task more, more generally. Um, but, you know, youth ministry are really great engaged people as well as uh, you can really do a lot of kind of philosophical work on culture and things like that. So it's been a, it's been a good field for me to be in with uh, a lot of great people. So, so work with a lot of youth workers and uh, a lot of pastors and uh, try to kind of think theologically alongside their practice of ministry. Yeah. And, and that's where I was introduced to you was through, uh, through youth ministry things, uh, worked with youth for, for a long time before uh, going into the, the greater ministry of the church. Uh, but, uh, you know, taking theology, theology into youth ministry, man, that's, that's a book that I've just poured through and I recommend oh, cool. to, to any youth pastor, whether it's new or old or, you know, if they're just looking for something to, to dig into, that's, that's one of the ones that I recommend often. And oh, ran across you, you in that word. Yeah, and thanks for the plug. I appreciate yeah, that. For sure. Like I said, we'll just be as shameless as we can be. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in your writings and stuff, I know you got a couple of new books coming out or they're already out. Um, tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, I mean, it was a kind of um, embarrassing year because I had some projects kind of backed up. So in the last six months or so, actually in the last almost year, I've had three books come out. So uh, that makes me seem much more prolific than I am. But um, I wrote a book, I wrote a memoir about uh, the death of our family dog called the grace of dogs. And then I kind of 
tried to do like a popular science theology book on the spiritual connections we might have with our dogs. But uh, I tell you that because everyone who's listening should, should read that. We're shamelessly plugging everything. So you should pick up six copies of that. And it's, it's actually written in a way that your dog can read it. So you should probably buy a copy for your dog. It's like bacon scented pages. Nice. I'm totally kidding on that, but uh, <laughs> you should try it and have your dog try to eat it and see what happens. Um, but I wrote that book and that book took so long to write. It was the hardest book I've ever written. Um, kind of lowest academic bar, but hardest book to write. And while I was writing that, I decided like, I'm just going to write an academic book. I'm just going to write a, a, a prime, you know, kind of uh, uh, idea book and not worry about a broad audience. So I ended up working on this project called Faith Formation in the Secular Age, which is really kind of my take in the way that kind of Charles Taylor's philosophy has infiltrated my being in the last four or five years in trying to kind of bring that to bear on the whole crisis or supposed crisis within the church around uh, the loss of young people and particularly, you know, the rise of the nuns and things like that. And so I'm trying to challenge at least some of that anxiety that we have and, and then try to kind of all a Taylor give a kind of philosophical genealogy on our moment and then respond to that theologically. So, uh, yeah, that's that project. Nice. So, so coming, coming to the, just that faith foundation talking about the rise of, of, of the nuns, you know, what we're with Matt and I both worked with ministry for a long time and, and still do in, in some regards and see a lot of that begin to be fostered, uh, you know, young adulthood. And, and so how, how do we approach that? Uh, or how do you approach that uh, in your work in, in taking this area of youth and young adults and begin to, to bridge that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question. Um, I, for me, one of the ways that the book really starts is kind of this motif of being asked to solve this problem at a denominational like speaking event and I'm saying you know we're just have utter anxiety about the loss of millennials the decline of young people you know the rise of the nuns can you help us come solve this problem and I was working on a, on a book on Bonhoeffer at the time that this this kind of incident happened and was kind of shocked because Bonhoeffer Bonhoeffer's been pretty much haunting me since my my own doctoral study days but uh was haunted by his theses on youth work where he talks about um, that the church has become more enamored with the youthful spirit than the Holy spirit. And he's this guy who's like totally for trying to find a place for young people, thinking young people have to have an essential place within the church. And then also comes back at the church for too often um, turning young people into a kind of device or a, a kind of ethos of, of uh, vital institutionalism or something and that we use them actually to kind of make our churches feel like they're, they're in less decline or religion is in a better place in, in our contemporary context than maybe it is. And so I start, I started to kind of write through that vein. Like, is it possible that we in kind of Protestantism in America are more enamored with the youthful spirit than the Holy spirit. And is, do we really want young people and their concrete humanity and their big questions in our communities? Do we really want them in the center of our, of our life? Or do we kind of more want the youthful spirit so we can feel like, especially our mainline institutions still have some vitality. Um, and so I try to kind of trace that history of how did we kind of culturally um, get enamored with the youthful spirit. So um, Charles Taylor, I mean, when you, you're going to write on Charles Taylor and particularly on his book, A Secular Age, the thing is such a, 
uh, weighty, you know, uh, I mean, it, it just feels like it weigh, weighs eight pounds. It doesn't, but it, it's a big book, you know, 900 pages filled with ideas. And it's a, it's a crazy book because he's just trying to answer one question, but it takes him 900 pages to do it. And, and his one question is why 500 years ago, if you're to rewind 500 years ago in the Western world, was it nearly impossible for someone not to believe in God? And why in a short 500 years has it kind of flipped? And it's actually harder to believe in God than not. And I don't know if anyone watched, uh, who's listening, watched, I guess, it depends on when you listen to this, but uh, I don't know what episode it is, maybe episode four or five of Silicon Valley on HBO. Um, I don't know if any, you guys watched that. Um, but the whole kind of motif was that uh, they were starting this 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 website or he's gonna he's getting he's getting web developers to work on his new internet he's starting and it becomes a scandal because one of them's a christian and it's just like well we can work with anyone um but not a christian and in silicon valley you can't really have a christian there so it's interesting that taylor's work is basically saying how could we get to a society like that especially in pockets on the east coast and the west coast where it's possible and it's actually seems more odd and strange to believe in god than than not believe in god so when you when you work with taylor you have to kind of pick ideas because he's got so many packed in that book and the idea i kind of pull out in in the faith formation and secular age book is his take on the age of authenticity and what it means to be living in the age of authenticity and then try to draw a parallel to the youthful spirit um, becomes in many ways the billboard or the mark of uh, authenticity. So you have to have young people so your institution seems authentic. And But the real currency that we're looking for is authenticity. And religious institutions, particularly Protestant um, institutions, have lost the kind of sense of cultural authenticity. And that's what we're longing for. Um, but I wonder if that's actually kind of falls into idolatry, um, that we, we want that kind of form of, of, uh, of authenticity that... Uh, that may be um, problematic. Well, and that's something that we've talked about on here a couple of times is, um, you know, one of the questions that Zach and I have been asked, and we've been uh, denominational leaders in regards to youth and young adult ministries uh, in our various conferences. And, you know, the question that I've always been asked is what can we do to get more young people in our church? And, 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 you know, I hate that question. I hate that mm -hmm. question. Like I would much rather deal with a problem of what can we do to actually get people who want to connect to Christ into our church and want mm -hmm. to have that relationship more so than a certain age demographic. Not, mm -hmm. not just because I know that, you know, people between the ages of 18 and 35 have no money and can't support our ministries, um, you know, but um, in our transient and only stay somewhere for two years, um, you know, that that's a whole other mess of you know, problems to deal with in its own right. But, you know, how do we establish those relationships with our community around us uh, as a church, whether it's a youth ministry or a, you know, um, young adult ministry or whatsoever. And, and I think that um, I really do believe that what people are longing for is a relationship. And you mm -hmm. look at, you know, you look at some of the pushback with uh, some of the things that are going on with uh, all the social media stuff. And it's kind of drawing us back towards having actual, you know, kind of some kind of relationship, whether it be something like this or, hey, let's actually physically go have a drink and actually physically talk to each other, you know? And, mm -hmm. Wow, that's actually kind of a cool deal. Um, and I think that, um, you know, we've been noticing that here in this this congregation that the more we reach out and get to know our people, or the people that are even coming into the church, um, it's drawing more people in. And because right. we're, we're trying to establish authentic relationships versus just like, mm. hey, we just we're glad you're here. Fill this seat. You know, here's your giving card. Here's, you know, like I'm so done with that. I'm so done with the whole numbers thing. And mm. like, um, 
I, and I think this is the other thing too, that um, it's not necessarily a mainline problem, but it may be just a Christianity problem is that you see those churches that have like the, what I call the dog and pony show stuff. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's not what people are wanting, you know, like who cares what cup you buy to draw into your guest? You know, if anything, it's a great cup. I'm going to go get your cup and I'm, you really care less. I've got a great cup, you know? Um, And so as, as you've gone through this, I mean, you're, you're, uh, I'll just say this because you, that's where you are. You're in the ivory tower. (laughs) Um, And and so (laughs) as you're in the ivory tower, what are some things that you're seeing in regards to like people that are like, you know, what you're doing and like the connections that you're having, yeah. uh, some things that maybe you know, yeah. can help us. Yeah, you know. for sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, I, I totally get your point, except it doesn't feel very ivory right now. It, do, it does potentially feel locked away, but it feels like a cinder block. Theological education's in so much trouble that, man, I wish there was some ivory and, you know, right. some, some gold uh, pictures around <laughs> instead it's just like a bucket and, you know, cinder block everywhere. But you're right. We can easily become disconnected and kind of imprisoned away in, in, in academic exercises. And so I'm, I'm totally with you and, and a, a really a, a red thread that's run through all of my my work is the importance of relationship one of the places i want to push and would encourage kind of pastors on the ground to think about is um, not only why relationship is important simply just for building connection and and uh, loyalty and all of that but how relationship itself can embody or can become the very place where uh, people encounter the very revelation of God, where God breaks into their lives. And that's what I find so interesting about Taylor's argument is he's a philosopher. He's not a theologian. So the second half of my book, I have to kind of respond as a theologian, but he's really trying to, I think, descriptively tell us from a philosophical perspective, why it's so hard for us to name or even imagine how God um, encounters us in our in our lives, and I really do think people are interested in that question. And I think too often, kind of pastors and youth pastors and others have been more concerned about, like you were saying, kind of getting people to show up or building the institution instead of really thinking about, well, how is it that people in their ordinary lives experience the the living presence of, of God? How does how does that actually happen? And so, what I try to offer in the book is is a way that that really actually happens in the context of, of ministry um, that really happens in the context of ministry it happens as a ministerial reality. So one of the kind of theological perspectives I'm trying to push is to try to think about God and, and make a case biblically and through the theological tradition how, of how God and God's own act and being is a minister and that God, um, that God reaches out and ministers to the world. And so the way that we actually participate and share in this God's being is by being ministers ourselves. And so that relational dynamic becomes essential because the relational dynamic actually becomes the place where we minister one to another. And in ministering one to another, we get these you know, deep echoes and realities of kind of Matthew 25, Lord, Lord, when did we see you? So the experience of transcendence or the experience of revelation, I think actually happens in these encounters of, of, um, of ministry. So the second half of the book, I try to really look into what Paul actually thought faith was. And uh, for me, I try to argue, and I think, I think you can see this in Paul, that for Paul, faith really is um, an experience of the living Christ in and through a death experience and, and the confession of, of kind of your death experience. And um, I think that becomes really formative for ministry, that ministry is really a, a sense of relationship that brings 
um, some, a, a deep connection and allows a space for storytelling um, and articulations of our death experience and to minister to one another in and through those death experiences and to claim, I think, and even tangibly experience um, the living presence of Jesus Christ in those moments of ministering one to another. So I try to use Ananias as a, as a kind of example here that Ananias, uh, after Paul is on his way in Acts to, you know, to do some murdering, um, you know, he, he's, he's got his murder on and he's heading, heading to Damascus to, to, you know, go total, uh, um, I don't know, um, uh, some movie scene where there'll be blood everywhere. Um, uh, and he, he ends up, uh, knocked down and blind and then on the on the street called straight uh and then ananias the spirit comes to ananias and tells him to go and minister to paul and he just a heroic move because he's got to think man this is a trap for sure um but he goes and ministers to him and in that moment an incredible transformation happens um and so to kind of think of ananias as this uh it's kind of paradigm of of ministering and participating and sharing in people's death experience becomes a real way of embodying and living out kind of cross and resurrection um as as the kind of narratives of our lives in, in many ways so that relational dynamic becomes really essential but i think what pushes it and makes it a kind of a revelatory moment is how we embody in those relationships this movement of of um of really incarnation crucifixion and resurrection in, in, a, in a pretty beautiful way and becomes part of the job i think of pastoral leadership that can continue to remind people and help people see that vision and um, to live out their lives in a way that continues to reflect this narrative, which is often a very, um, you know, it's a very kind of kenotic thing is what I talk about in the book is it sounds this kind of movement into kenosis of being willing to enter into another person's death experience and uh, sharing their life in a significant way. You know, that that's something so significant in, in sharing, sharing our lives with one another too, too often, especially with the church, we approach new people or new people in the church or just people in the community um, without sharing our own experience. Mm -hmm. And we, we just want to hear and, and, and be part of somebody else's, but there seems to be this unwilling, not maybe not unwillingness, but uh, this reluctancy to share our own death and resurrection stories and be like, Oh man, here's where I'm at. Here's where I've jacked up. Here's where, where I've been redeemed. Uh, instead we we've kind of left that behind and said, here's where I'm at today. Right. You know, yeah. leaving behind the steps that got us here. Right. Um, and that all goes back to that being authentic, uh, just the authenticity, authenticity of relationships and, and actually telling your story, actually sharing and pouring into someone and not just letting them pour into you or, or just be like, no, tell me your story. You know, no, 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 here's parts of mine, you know, here's where I'm at and here's where, how God got me there. Um, yeah. And that, that just that significance and saying, you know, here's, here's birth, death and resurrection. And here's where I find hope in all of it. Um, and being able to share that is huge. Yeah, I, th yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I, I, so we talk, I, it's funny because we talked about this last night in the little Bible study that I do. Hmm. Uh, and the question, the, the lesson was on uh, evangelism. And, and I talked about how we've lost the art of evangelism in the hmm. church uh, because we've given that word up as a bad word, or, um, even if we use like the uppercase, uh, evangelical word, um, you know, and, and we've, we've decided to get rid of that word. And when we've done that, we've also lost our, our voice of telling the good news and that we can't, we don't know. We, we haven't taught our people how to articulate that story. Uh, that's their story. Uh, because we've either, um, you know, 
when I first started preaching at my current appointment, um, the, one of the nice little notes that I got was you need more stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, you need to quit talking about the Bible and quit talking about other things. And actually, you know, we want like three stories, a couple of theological things, and then let's go home. I was like, I can't, you know, that's not my style. You know, I want it, I want it to be like, you're sitting right next to me and we're having a conversation. So, mm. gonna, you know, and I'll do it with some stories. And I think that those are important, but when we don't put ourselves into the story and talk about how this affects us, you know, people, you know, really, especially in this day and age, since we're so, in, you know, we love a good story, <laughs> you know, that's why Game of Thrones and those other, oh, yeah, so, sure. so things are so important <laughs> because we're longing for that kind of a story. Uh, maybe not to be like a Game of Thrones kind of lifestyle. I mean, not season yeah. one at least. That's you know, pretty uh, risky. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, that's it. <laughs> but uh, I think we do long, you know, for a good story. I mean, look at yeah, like look at American Idol and those TV shows. Like, what makes those TV shows? It's not the crappy singing and like embarrassing <laughs> video of like the kid yeah. that like really can't sing but swears he can sing because his mama told him so. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the like it's those heart tearjerker stories that we like gravitate to and we mm -hmm. want to hear even though we've heard the same story like 500 times we still keep tuning in and i think mm -hmm. that that's where christianity kind of screwed up we forgot that that's a part of who we are is to tell the story because yeah. right. i that's one of the things i've enjoyed about uh studying a little bit about judaism one of the things they do well is tell the story and they continue mm -hmm. to tell the story over and over again and now they're a part of that yeah. and i think that that's something that we can draw back from because that's a part of us as well and one of the things that you lifted up and, and I kind of jotted it down because I, I was kind of like the, the, what you had said, it was the um, kind of like our um, relationships, uh, how they can embody like a Christ-like encounter. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's so uh, key, not only as, as us as pastors, but I think like within, you know, your work as a, as a professor and um, you know, uh, I am who I am today because of many different semini seminary professors, either in spite of, or, right. <laughs> um, right. or um, you know, I, I definitely am indebted to some of those that definitely took time to build a relationship. Yeah. And I think that that, you know, if, if we're going to, if we're going to turn the ship around and I know all the ships are sinking in regards to Christianity, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. if we want to believe in that, I mean, I, I have a hard time with that. I think it's a, the whole other process, but mm -hmm. sure. Um, I think that um, some of it is, and um, and I think this is where higher education has fallen uh, <laughs> prey to this, is that we forgot to tell our why. Why do we do what we do? Yeah, uh, I think that's yeah, yeah, so yeah. important. Yeah, totally. And I think we we as in in ministry we we have uh, for sure we've forgotten to tell our why, and we've we've not been able to actually articulate the where either. Like, mm -hmm. where is Jesus Christ? where is it that we encounter Jesus Christ? And, and that has become kind of unbelievable to people that, mm -hmm. um, that God could actually be out there moving. I mean, even, I think even in more kind of conservative Protestant um, denominations and churches that they believe that as an idea, but how they actually live that out, I think is, 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 is it just feels kind of unbelievable, but I think it's a huge challenge. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges we face, especially kind of in the age of authenticity and the age of authenticity is, is we're kind of stuck in it because there's a lot of good things. Like we've said, like, there's no way to be in relationship with people without being authentic. You authentic, the, the kind of drive towards authentic authenticity is really important, but, connected to authenticity, there's also this ethic of authenticity that Taylor talks about. And the ethic of authenticity says, 
that every human being has a, a right to define for themselves what it means to be human. And really no outside force should tell you what it means for you to be a human being, which at one level I completely support. Um, completely support that, that people's experience, they have to have the freedom to articulate that. We have to hear that, um, that we can't let kind of dominant narratives and dominant, dominant cultural locations set the terms for other people's experience. But at another level, that becomes really difficult because everything kind of becomes based on what, what works for me. And if, well, if religion, if faith, if the Bible, if Jesus, if that works for you, that's fine, but it doesn't need to work for me. So the real push then for identity and, and for us to answer the question, who am I? Um, that man, identity just becomes kind of what you feel. And I think it becomes a real challenge for, for pastors to think about how do you help people take their basic move and the basic but most fundamental move of seeing their identity in Christ and what it means to be in Christ and how do we do that? And I think one of the things that Taylor helps us with is one of the illusions of the age of authenticity that every in the ethic of authenticity that everyone has a right to define for themselves what it means to be human is we tend to assume that you get to decide in some bubble who you are. You know, maybe you look on the internet or something, but for the most part you get to define who you are. But his point and he makes a large argument on this in, his, in a book that followed the secular age called the language animals that identity is always a discourse it's always it's always a conversation with something over against something or in connection with something and um, but it's always kind of a dialogue and discourse and I think a big big push for us is how do we not only have those conversations in our church how do we actually talk about what it means to be in Christ and have that conversation and allow people to articulate their experiences especially their death experiences or experiences of loss or of want and of need but then how do we help them kind of imagine that there is a God who's a speaking God. I mean, the God of Israel, um, the God that comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ is a God who speaks. I mean, that was, I think, the, a, the big, beautiful takeaway, both from kind of the Old Testament, but also then from the Protestant Reformation, is that this is a God who comes in word. This is a God who comes speaking. This is a God who comes even embodied as word. And so uh, that becomes a, a real I think a real, a real struggle for us, but it does move our congregations that have to be places of discourse and conversation and, and wrestling and doubt, doubt around continued discourse and, and, uh, and, and giving our best accounts of, of, of reality and what a life's worth and, and what makes a life worth living and talking about that and wrestling with that. And so I think, you know, really when you were saying earlier, what does this look like outside of the ivory tower or what I would say is the, the dirty cement basement of academia <laughs> is uh, it, it really means, I think, creating communities around conversation and real deep conversation um, where we speak in proper names. We know each other's names and um, that uh, we share our experiences and we give our best accounts of reality and, um, and we give our takes on how it is that we really encounter God in our lives. A buddy of mine, he, uh, he does a lot of bar church stuff and, uh, as a pastor and he, he started a couple of new faith communities in the last, um, I don't know, last six, eight months. And, uh, he's, he started, he, he's the newest one. Um, he's, he's got this group of people that he started meeting with and just hanging out with at this, at this bar. Cause he was hanging out with some friends. And so it became a regular thing. And he was telling me the other day, about six months ago, this dude came up to him and didn't know he was a pastor, just knew he had long hair tattoos and was hanging out uh, and talking to people. And, and he said, he said, man, this dude pushed really hard. To, he was like, you know, I, I worship Satan and, and here's why I think you should. 
right? Uh-huh. And uh, he's like, so I, I sat and listened to him. And uh, he's like, well, well, let me let me tell you why I worship Jesus, you know, and, and kind of where I'm at on that. And so they have this dialogue, this whole honest conversation on both sides and kind of agreed at the end of the night that they were going to keep doing whatever they were doing, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, fast forward six months, this this guy who's trying to get my pastor friend to, to worship the devel but I find that hilarious yeah. I find it hilarious too <laughs> uh, but he's he's like you know I don't want anything to do with the church whatever but he keeps coming and hanging out and they've started making they make uh, once a week they make like 140 uh, breakfast for the school that's just down the street and uh, this dude's all in mm. he's like no, no no we're gonna make breakfast for kids yeah I'm in mm. and it and it's that it's that commonality. It's that, that communication, that conversation that they've had. Yeah, we agree on this, you know, this thing over here, but this other thing that's helping people, I can get on board with that. Right. Uh, And it's just bringing that whole commonality in, in that, that humanity and dignity of, I want to be a part of this. You know, we may not believe in the same thing, but I believe in this. We believe in this together. Um, And I mean, that's huge. And it just came through that. uh, Yeah. Yeah, That's fascinating. Well, yeah, it really think, is. I think one of the problems that we face in our society and is that we are afraid to be a Christian mm. uh, because of mm. other people that have portrayed us necessarily not in a great light. And so um, I've been using kind of this uh, term lately around my congregation that I have no problem. I'm unapologetically Christian. Mm. And so that means I'm going to do things that are Christ-like things around you. And I'm okay. Like, I'm just who I am. Um, and I, I say that cause when we had, so I'm in Oklahoma and, uh, we had, we just had, uh, a nine day teacher strike. It was nine days for us. It was 10 for others, but, uh, but my, our church stepped up in the community and offered free childcare for about 35 kids. Wow. And, uh, we were, and it was all free. Uh, I don't think, I think when it's all said and done, I don't think it's going to cost us anything through some donations and other things. But, um, <laughs> after day one, I had a phone call from a parent who uh, called upset that we were talking about Jesus, um, you know, at, at this child care. And I looked at, and I, and my response was, you send them to a church. Uh, we are unapologetically Christian. Uh, if, if this isn't going to help you, then I'm, there's not much we can do. Uh, this is who we are. This is how we operate. And while we have your kids here, we want to teach them a little bit about faith because that's what the church does. Mm-hmm. She sent her kid every day yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and some of it may have been, that's what she, you know, is the only thing that she could do. But, um, you know, I, I think far too often we become like scared to talk about Jesus mm-hmm. or scared to talk about our, you know, like, Hey, we do this because of our right. faith. And, and I, right. and, and that's, if, if something's really concerned me, um, uh, that was one thing that really kind of, I struggled with in seminary was it seemed like anytime we'd start talking about faith, it was like, Nope, don't go there. Like that's not allowed. It's gotta be, you know, you've got to have your argument and you know, you got to have all that stuff. Like just don't even go there. And, and I had a hard time with that because I, my undergrad work was in, I had an undergrad degree in religion and the school that I attended, we actually, that was something that was kind of almost a requirement uh, mm-hmm. that we do that. And I, I just, I'm afraid that like we've reared people to stop talking about it. Yeah. But, only in you know only in if it fills out the paperwork kind of terms right um yeah and i think that is uh yeah that is the pressure of kind of 
where we're at and in, 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 in I think in Protestantism in, in general, particularly in mainline Protestantism is there's almost, yeah, we're just not sure we should talk about it. And that I think is the, the rendering of the secular age on us in that we, um, but the, the irony of that, I think, and, and this is, I really agree with Taylor on this is that we all are kind of thrust into this secular age where belief is contested, where, you know, our neighbor who we get along with and maybe barbecue with, you know, six times a summer doesn't believe. And we believe, and we, we know all sorts of people who don't believe. So all of our beliefs are, are contest are contested. And even if you're someone who believes you can't help kind of looking over your shoulder and knowing there's a lot of people who don't believe. And one of the most fascinating things I find about Taylor is he says, you know, uh, in a secular age, all believers doubt sometimes, which, mm-hmm. okay, that makes sense. So we, that we can all intuitively sense that, but what makes this work so fascinating, he says also in a secular age, um, all doubters sometimes believe. In other words, we get, we get kind of struck with, with possibility. And so I think bearing and being in that age, all we can do is give our take, give our take of what, what makes a life we're living, of, of, um, uh, of who's beckoned us and who's called us. And I think that there's even more of an onus on us to speak these very things, to be unapologetically Christian or, or to say like Christ and him crucified gives my life meaning. And this is how, and this is, and this is what this looks like. Um, so uh, Taylor calls that kind of your open take that in a secular age, um, we all have to, we, we have to help people have an open take and be open to the possibility of, of a personal God encountering them. And we have to give our best account within that. And so I think that becomes a really important thing we have to do. And that connects with the other story about your, about Zach, about your, your, your Satanist friend, which right. I, I think one of the ways that Christianity and the Christian church gives its best account it is through words and it is like we just said, I mean, this is a speaking God. So we have to speak this. We have to tell the story, but it also happens. And those words actually speak in direct concrete ways of doing ministry. And so I think one of our biggest evangelistic kind of tasks or um, kind of forms is we ask people to come and be ministered to and actually to minister to us too. Cause I think that's one of the amazing dynamics of, of at least a kind of a Christocentric Christological understanding of ministry is that this Jesus who comes to us comes to minister to us that would also um, to receive our ministry. This, this in, in the kind of Trinitarian form that, that Jesus is the one who ministers to God and receives God's ministry or, or speaks the word of God and, and uh, it both hears and speaks it. And so part of, I think, living out of that the church says yeah come and we will do ministry but it's more than just kind of we make the world a better place or we do justice for justice sake it's that we do these acts of ministry because they 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 really bring forth the very presence bring us face to face bring us um, in a concrete encounter with the living jesus christ and so you have to really understand the claims of christianity you have to come and both receive and give us ministry. And I mean, you think that's just an amazing dynamic to think about kind of interreligious dialogue. Like if we, if we want our neighbor to really understand our, say our, our uh, Muslim neighbor to really understand what Christianity is, um, it's not through an argument or some kind of yelling debate over propositional truth. It's, re- it's really through giving and receiving ministry. And we have to say to that Muslim neighbor, let me minister to you for you to see the truth of Christianity. But then I also need to be ministered you need to minister to me. Um, so I need to eat with you. I need to, I need to be in your house. I need to um, hear your prayers. I mean, there's a, there's a rich dynamic that I think um, happens there. And I wonder if that's part of, I mean, it would be interesting to follow the story with your pastor friend and his, and his Satanist friend and to see if that dynamic yeah. of actually feeding kids 
uh, proclaims over and over again the depth of the gospel itself and uh, what happens when a Satanist does ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, you can almost hear Paul kind of saying, right. and that's legit ministry, man. Right. We're not going to fight if they're, uh, <laughs> in what name they're doing it. If Satanists want to uh, feed the hungry in the name of Jesus and with a group of people who are doing this in the name of Jesus, then that is the ministry of God in the world. Right. And that is this kind of opposite right. crazy um, incarnational dynamic that even the Satanist proclaims um, the good news of, of God's kingdom um, in Jesus Christ. Kind yeah, of it's, you're it's, it's an awesome story. He keeps, he keeps unpacking it for me every few weeks. <laughs> and it's like, come, keep bringing this. I want to well, hear more. <laughs> well, and, and Zach, you can look at what we do every night. Uh, with, oh yeah, absolutely. With our, with our uh, so Zach and I are uh, avid X, Xbox players. Um, okay. And uh, we've got these three friends that are definitely non-believers <laughs> by action and you know proclamation in a lot of ways. Um, but Zach and I know, both know that uh, if they needed some spiritual guidance, that they could talk to us. And 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 I don't know if, if Zach can fill it, but I know that, and I've known these guys a little bit longer than Zach has but I have seen how the spirit is slowly working on them. Mm -hmm. And there's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and some of that's life changes too, but I also think that um, it, it's the spirits working on them and it, that they would have never had that opportunity. Had we not been, you know, had we been, you know, pastors that are like, Oh, you know, I can't, can't be around that kind of language or, you know, Right. A pastor actually plays Xbox until one or two o'clock at night, you know? Um, uh, but, oh, and that's the thing. They're not going to walk into our church, but we'll walk into their arena. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, it's just that bridge uh, yeah. to come together over something that's common uh, and, and be in, be able just to live our lives and interject in the ways that we can and yeah. have the conversations that we do uh, with them. And it, it's really, it is fascinating. That's fascinating. Very cool. yeah. Well, Andrew, um, uh, give a couple of your colleagues uh, some mad props uh, to them. Uh, the Sermon Brainwave crew uh, was oh, the yeah. first podcast I ever listened to and actually still listen to week in and week out. Uh, but, the, but that casting crew uh, really kind of is what motivated me for podcasting. Oh, really? <laughs> and so, yeah, you might uh, let them know that they've inspired at least one podcast um, in some way, shape, or <laughs> I will let them know for sure, but I, I will kind of uh... – I don't know. I'll be careful so it doesn't uh, make them too arrogant, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. it, and I know that they. I mean, they always have a book coming out. At least, I mean, that's that's. I mean, how some of you guys make money is if, if you guys like. If there's anybody at the seminary that would that would love to push their book, we have no. Like I said, we have no shame in our game. Letting people know yeah. that we've had them on the podcast uh, yeah. in whatever way, um, and we uh, value your time and the time that you've given us today. Uh, We've enjoyed the conversation. I know I've enjoyed the conversation. And, yeah. And, uh, oh, gosh, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. If, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? No, man, it's just been fun. And, uh, yeah, I mean, people can find me on Twitter or Facebook or whatever and hope they check out uh, Faith Formation of Secular Age. And if they're thinking about uh, conversations around science, which is a kind of a big issue in the secular age, too, is if, you know, belief can become contested, it has a lot to do with science, I think, in some ways, too, where that becomes a tripping point. People can find the book uh, Exploding Stars, Dead Dinosaurs, and Zombies, Youth Ministry in an Age of Science, which is, I don't know, the weirdest or coolest title out there right now. <laughs> so they can check that out, and that would be that would be great. But it's uh, been fun talking with you guys, and um, it's been the first podcast I've been on that we've talked about a Satanist. So that's uh, <laughs> I'll check that off on my box of, uh, of good times. Perfect. <laughs> 
Well, uh, we thank you for your time and, uh, you know, um, check him out and, uh, we'll have some of his links on our, uh, on our site too. So you can connect in there and just in case you forget, or if you're listening on your phone, you know, we advise you not to like try to look Google that while you're driving in traffic. <laughs> um, but, uh, we give you thanks for your time, uh, Andrew and, and to our listeners, uh, we want to encourage you to go on our website at beardedtheologians.com. And we've got some really great, uh, podcasts, uh, that have been done in the last few months, uh, with some great guests and, uh, some great conversation between me and Zach as well. And then uh, we've got all of our like t-shirts and hats and all that crazy stuff uh, through Zazzle. Uh, feel free to, to pick you up a t-shirt in support of what we do because that three cents that we get back from that coffee mug really goes back into the <laughs> podcast. Well, um, for the bearded theologians, right. I'm Matt Franks and I'm Zach Bechtold. Thanks for checking us out. Thank you for listening to the Bearded Theologians podcast. We hope you've enjoyed listening and we hope that you share our content online uh, through Facebook and social media. And we hope that you check out our uh, Beardcast store at beardedtheologians.com and pick up some great Bearded Theologians gear. We hope you have a good day.